Salam salam, Ishtanein Singaye. What's up, everybody? This is Omar. This is Nura. Hitting you up for the Samawar Network's uh, second installment, our our second podcast. Nura, where you been, man? Where have you been? <laughs> I think we've both been in New York. Is that right? Uh, I think so. We've been we've been a little busy with some some other stuff going on. I think uh, we we were both together though. We spent some time. We spent New Year's together actually. That's true. Salnam Mubarak. We spent the first a day of spring together with what 400 other afghans at the afghan american conference in new york city this is true this is true this took up hella time took mm-hmm. up too much of my life but it's How done it now feel? it's I nice to be done yeah nice to be done um and 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 it was a lot of work but i mean hopefully it was you know it was worth it and people got something yeah. out of it i mean for those that don't know omar maybe you should tell folks you were the um, one of the program chairs for the conference this year. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm. Uh, I was a co-programming chair this year. Um, previously, I was uh, on the organizing committee, helping with some of the initiatives that happen outside of the conference. Uh, and this year, I was directly involved in the programming side alongside Sophie Hussein. So that was fun. It was a good time. It was a lot of work. A lot more work than probably. That's why you look uh, like had... a Secret Service agent. <laughs> your earpiece on, looking hella important, clipboard. Hella official. I literally do. I spend a whole year doing that work just for the earpiece and a free T-shirt at the end. There so you go. There you go. And that's pretty much the reason why I do it. Cool. But, but you had the spotlight. You were you were on stage this year. You had the, uh, you know, you were a showstopper. You 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 did a, a C talk. So, um, we call those the supportive. Um, empowered and engaged Afghan-American community is part of the, the mission and vision of AAC. So um, you planted a seed at AAC. Yeah, I was really, really nervous to do it, but you had encouraged me to uh, discuss... Um, discuss we, we had uh, offline from TSN and in other conversations discussed the role of Afghan women, especially women who wear the hijab, within the Afghan community. And so as someone who wears a hijab, I've always felt like that perspective is complicated and not well understood. And so um, it took encouragement from you, from other friends. Um, I want to shout out a bunch of friends that like really um, were like, let's let's just have this conversation. And for me, it was probably one of the things I'm most, um, I feel most vulnerable about talking about. So beyond friends talking about it publicly, I was really nervous to do it. But um, getting up on stage, uh, the crowd was so supportive. They laughed at, like, all my corny jokes. So um, I was like, okay, I can actually, like, deliver this narrative. And it was, what, eight minutes, ten minutes long? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, so for people that aren't familiar, it's about kind of like a think of a TED Talk sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah, it's about 10 minutes long where you're up on stage in front of all the attendees of the Afghan American conference. So it's like this year, about 400, 450 people that you were you were standing in front of and telling your personal story. What was that like to, to talk 
in front of that many people? It was okay. So the only thing that didn't make it, it was nerve wracking, but, um, like my, um, uh, close friends from the, the, from the Afghan, from ADAP, the Afghan diaspora for equality and progress, they were like on the front row with TSN folks. So I was like trying to look at my, like people I knew. So that helped. And I played some Jay-Z, like when I got up, I played a one minute clip from a Jay-Z song. What song? And then, um, America, America, what song did I play? Uh, just a song to America. get you hyped up somewhere in America okay. no no no, no. song was a one minute clip that was used to um, was a one minute music video from this um, music video that's that's about the mipsters the Muslim hipsters and it's basically um, Jay-Z track over like a video of um, Muslim women from different racial and ethnic backgrounds um, many who are hijab wearing doing things like skateboarding, like, um, fencing. So it's like disrupting what we think women in hijab are capable of doing and like making a fashion statement. So it's very aesthetically pleasing to the eye, but also, um, jarring for people who have a very one, uh, one image minded view of what uh, a Muslim woman should look like. Right. And even in our community, people who wear the hijab are seen as being like super conservative or super religious in a way that makes it seem like you're only allowed to do something within a specific boundary. So that music video itself, like pushes people to think a lot. And for me, it was just hearing Jay-Z that kind of was like, okay, it kind of got me in the mood to actually talk about my narrative. Cause my narrative talked about how, um, when I decided to wear a hijab in high school, I kind of gave up being Afghan and I didn't realize I was making that choice, but to my family, who um, were wearing hijab as something that's not normal for them, um, I did receive pushback. And so that was um, something people don't expect because I think some Afghan families are pretty religious and do expect women in their families to like dress a certain way. But for my family, it was different. They're from Kabul. And so discussing sort of the complexities around that, but then also getting to the point of just in general, in any Afghan space, like beyond wearing hijab, women are totally judged by like their their image, right? Whether or not you wear hijab, like how like how short your dress is, how long it is, something that we always become a topic of conversation. And so it was interesting after the seed talk to talk to women to see how they resonated with it. Um, yeah, because someone told me actually right before the like right after the sea talk someone came up to me and he's like it's so interesting you had this conversation because right before she, they had walked in for the session this guy had come up to her this girl wears hijab and had commented on her nails like oh you wear hijab why are you like wearing nails like that that's not islamic oh, you know damn. like the bounds of islam you should be doing x y and z and she's just like excuse me like that's my right right you know like let me do me but it's, she was like, it's so ironic because this dude approached her that she doesn't know and said that. And then they walk into that first AEC session. And then the conversation that I brought up on, around this came up. And she's just like, it was like such ironic timing because that had just happened to her at the conference. So you feel like the Afghan community is not supportive of you wearing hijab? I think they make... Um, specific assumptions about me wearing hijab. Like what? Um, like, um, oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect you to be so down with like um, listening to the kind of music that I listen to. 
or having the kind of politics that I do or um, even like my comfort in social circles. Like I'm, I'm very friendly and outgoing. And I think um, there's this perception that hijabis like are very um, quiet and introverted and don't want to like engage with other people and um, see things in a very black white way. So it makes people, um, I always get like happy reactions, but it's also weird. Like, oh, we didn't know you were like, and also people think you're judgmental. They're like, oh, we didn't think you would be so open-minded and not judgmental. So there's this interesting dichotomy where people think you're judgmental, but they're being judgmental by judging you. But it also comes from people's trauma with religion because not everyone has, I, I don't know if Omar, like from your experience with the Afghan community, but like religion is definitely used as a tool that puts fear in people's eyes and since hijab is a symbol of religion i can see how it can make some people uncomfortable right yeah i mean it's this i definitely have seen kind of what you're talking about in terms of like there are certain expectations for somebody who wears hijab right like i i i think i told you this story before you before you gave your talk and just like every time if we go to like a hookah lounge or if we go out somewhere on like it's like, oh, look, there's some hijabis over there. Like, oh, look, those hijabis are dancing. Like, oh, look, those hijabis are like, you know, doing X, Y, Z. And it's just like everyone just points at them and is kind of making them the center of attention. And it's interesting. I mean, I was just like an observation I made of like everyone pays attention to every little thing that somebody does when they wear a hijab. I was playing soccer and got into it with this guy because he was you know, he, him and this girl that we were playing together was co-ed and she wore hijab and, you know, they, they went at it a little bit. And then one of the things that he said after, like she got pissed off at him and like, you know, it was like, what the F, you know, something like that. And then he's like, you're wearing hijab. How can you say those things? What kind of Muslim do you think you are? And then it just turned into this like really personal attack. And it was just so wrong that it just took the, it just went to this like next level of nonsense that, you know, had she not been wearing hijab, had that not been the case, like he would never say that, you know, but yeah. it just becomes the center of attention and it's all that people judge you on and think about. Definitely. I mean, I don't know if that's been your experience, but I mean, that's definitely something that I've observed and it's, it's unfortunate because I don't think I realized, you know, you said you feel uncomfortable in Afghan spaces because you wear that. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I always thought like, well, no, I thought we pride ourselves on religion. I thought we want uh like you know the the goal is to be religious or everyone is like oh you know be, being more religious is kind of rewarded so it's interesting to hear that you saying you get pushback for for that yeah i think it's a certain kind of religion like you can only be a certain mold right like you're supposed to be modest right so like women who who aren't like fulfilling that in the opposite spectrum and like even like having pink hair or something might be seen as rebellious. Right. But I think it's like for us, um, this tension of, of presenting as secular, like has to do with class. And if that's something that I know, um, I had talked to Reza about a little bit before the conference, Reza Hasabi, who's on TSN team as well. Like this tension between class and religion where we're wearing hijab almost seems like you're backwards and you want to fit in into a secular society. Right. So, you can be religious, but like, don't show it too much overtly, right? Not in the public space. Like, you should pro hide it, right? Like, that's where like that secularism of 
privatized religion and public religion come in like that tension. And so it's like that I defied a social norm that's like upon cobble women apparently by doing this. Right. Yeah. And my parents were so scared that like, I look backwards or that I wouldn't even finish college. Honestly, like the comments I used to get about my education were so weird. Like, you know, is she even going to go to college? Like, why the hell wouldn't I go to college? Cause I'm wearing hijab. Like that suddenly means like, I'm not interested in, you know, attaining like higher education. Like it's very odd, the assumptions and fears that come with it. The, yeah. I, and that's an interesting thing too. Like the whole class, um, dynamic because I feel like for a lot of you know I can speak for my own family right like they were like from Kabul and I think a lot of uh, not all the Afghans but a lot of Afghans that came here from Afghanistan were from Kabul and so like yeah. part of that experience was like trying to be hella bougie and yeah. emulating and replicating or trying to be western european and so part of that was i think some sense of rejection of religion and like you said there is this like be religious but don't be too religious and um like wearing the hijab or having a beard kind of crosses the line uh you know it's it's seen as this like lower class thing and it's it's unfortunate that that's kind of this like class dynamic i feel like that exists and still is exists to this day i think yeah it definitely still exists it's interesting because yeah you're right even with the beard thing people kind of the older generation gets uncomfortable with with beards or um my brother is like they they sometimes feel uncomfortable saying like i have to go pray right like they're very Mm. strategic about like getting their prayers in without like announcing it when they're at a social gathering right um but that could also that's also a function of what part of, of Afghanistan we're from. Because like some Afghan families, like you stop everything and you pray mm. in the congregation together, right? At a social function, right? Um, but yeah. yeah, I think that yeah, and there's a if you're not religious, that is actually, you know, you you can be chastised for that. Like that's exactly. religion is a huge focal point of some families. Um and, it, you know, again, it depends on everyone's kind of experience and where they're from, but um, it's an interesting dynamic that I've noticed as well. Uh, so besides your seed talk, besides kind of, you know, doing that, what were some other highlights you felt uh, oh from, from the weekend? Salar. <laughs> Salar Nader? Yes, he is so dope. So I was really, uh, so in addition to the seed talk, I, I got some kind of bronchitis or something that weekend, so I was really tired, and, and fr- it was Saturday night entertainment, right? Like, I left. I was like, I think I'm going to go sleep early, and then as soon as I leave the room, I hear the tabla and Drake playing over each other, and I was like, what the hell is going on? I, like, just left. I was, like, intending on completely leaving, and I walked back in, and Solar started playing, like, this awesome mix between... He was doing Tabla Live, right? Yeah, but yeah. But did a Drake song, French Montana, and then two other songs, right? Where it was, like, overlapping his Tabla skills on top of these, like, songs that we would listen to on the daily. Yeah, it he, was he mixed dope. it with some Afghans. He had some Katagani. He had some Missy Elliott. He had Jay-Z. He had a little bit of everything in there mixed in. Um, 
Yeah, that was fun. That was, and I was, I was sad to say that I didn't know the Drake song. I had no idea what the what? hell. I had no idea what it was. Oh my god! Um, Where are you? I know, but like, I was like, oh, this is a cool song. Oh man, Drake has a new song. Like that's really dope. You know, he put something. He's he's playing something that like is very new. And then all of a sudden, when the chorus comes on, everyone sings along, and I'm just like, oh, damn, I guess I'm a little bit out of the loop. But I'm legitimately shocked you don't know that song. I do now, but that was definitely the first time I had heard it. So I'm, uh, It took a band playing tabla for you to know this Drake song. I know, I know. But it was fun. It was a cool, like, it's... The, it was uh, That mix was so perfect. Like, it was just... Yeah. It was, it was just a good combination of both. And now I follow Salar, like, all the time on instagram live and watch him work out and you know do all these random things <laughs> <laughs> he's just become the dj khalid of, of of the afghan community i didn't know of, he has workout videos online no nah, man yeah he's got to get that cardio by shame like he's got it all <laughs> Don't his get... style it was his was on fleek too it was he had funny the yellow hat he was, yeah He's very gracious and open to talking to people, too. Like, yeah. it's so great to see that kind of talent in our community. Like, that moment made me proud because I feel like we don't give artists the the respect they need sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so seeing him up there, really, I was like, okay, this is talent. This is, like, what we do best. And he was, like, merging, like, the two cultures we know in such a great way that really resonated and was relevant. And then there was an Atan. I don't know if that was it. Was it that night? Yeah, it was that night in front of Washington Square Park. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to check it out, but I heard it was it was pretty cool. Like they, you know, Washington Square Park's like this really iconic place in uh, in New York City. So that was that was nice to to have the opportunity to do that there. Yeah, yeah, I think there's like a promo video with that time um, out out there, and um, I'm like, only in New York City could you have like all these Afghans in the middle of the night do a ton, and, <laughs> and you know, no one will freak out or call like cops or anything so uh, I think that really exemplified the kind of um, unity that not even unity like the kind of community collaboration that we hope for in yeah these, you know like Afghans from like different backgrounds and, like walks of life and for us it's like a really cool um, reunion spot because this kind of leads into this is uh, this is kind of like the third year anniversary of the Samoa Network yeah, I mean, it was after AAC year one um, mm -hmm. that we we got started. So, uh, you know, it was after. How yeah. did it start? Uh, I mean, it was a few weeks or months, you know, just a Facebook post about like, hey, the the uprisings in Baltimore were happening. And after Freddie Gray was, you know, was shot and killed or he was was killed, um, the, you know, there were so many awesome discussions that happened at the conference and it was just like, yo, like I want this to continue. Like I met so many dope people there and was just like, I never thought I'd meet these kind of Avians in my life. And then I don't want, I didn't want that to end. So I was like, let's get on a call and let's talk about this. And then we were like, Hey, we have like 10 people, but like a lot of other folks are interested. Why don't we just make it so that anyone can view it? And so we had it open to the public and anyone could listen to the call talking about, you know, what was happening in Baltimore, um, anti-blackness in our community. And then from there, it was just kind of TSN was born. It was just like, hey, people were interested and they wanted us to continue these calls and these conversations. And we just kept going. And three long years later, we are here now. <laughs> yeah, um, so much has happened in three years. Yeah, 
do you have any and and you joined you joined on after i think the first one after our first yeah, call yeah. so um, i go to ac um that was during my second year qualifying exams so i remember being super bummed about missing it um and then i was on facebook and so i like i study race and ethnic politics but i never really thought other afghans were into it so when i watched that video i was just like that you got your the online conversation i was like this is I felt so excited that other Afghans cared about these issues and were so thoughtful. And I think I reached out to you and someone else that was on the panel and just um, wanted to just be in conversation with people that I was like, I didn't realize people were this like-minded, you know, like I know Afghans in the U.S. are doing like awesome things, but it's another thing to have common interests. So I never imagined I'd actually be involved like this. Yeah. Any... Uh, any favorite moments for you in these past few years that you've been part of it? Uh, favorite? There's so many. Um, UCLA because uh, was one favorite moment. Like that was the second AAC, mm-hmm. and that was actually my first time meeting you guys in person, which yeah. is funny. I, I think we started working together for a full year before like I sh- show up to UCLA and I said salam to Dawood like I had known him my whole life, even though it was like our first time actually meeting. Um, so I think doing, we had a panel at that conference and that was really awesome to do a live panel. Uh, another favorite moment, like just random things. Like I had to call in on a call once from the side of a highway in Ohio, like these semi trucks passing by, just like random things like that stick out to me. Like we've had calls in like the weirdest situations, but those two moments definitely stick out. Yeah. Favorite moments? Um, I mean, I think I can think of an embarrassing moment. I mean, I just think of like when I, yeah, there was one call where I had to cut somebody off for talking too long and it was like a really, really sad and depressing story. And I'm like the worst person in the world, but I had to like, I, I did have to go on to the next person and I'm I'm literally going to hell for that moment, but oh, we um, will we'll never let you live that one down. I know you guys like to remind me of that. Um, but yeah, what do what do you feel like you've learned, or do you feel like there's what are some learning moments for you from doing it for three years? Um, learning moments is just I mean expect the unexpected. Um, I think every time we have a talk, I'm like this is going to be so controversial and uncomfortable. I don't know if we should do this, and I feel like. That comment is something I have said more in the last three years than I thought I would say. Like between the women of TSN talk on bitches in Zanaka to talking about, um, you know, LGBTQ Afghans. Like there are so many topics that we never talk about that I think I learned that our community is more capable of hand of discussing the uncomfortable than I thought we were. And so that's very inspiring for me. Yeah, and we had our and we just had uh, another call this past week. Um, we had uh, it was called it was called the black card. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what that was? So the black card uh, it's sort of like a lot of Afghans have grown up around um, around hip hop culture within or in proximity to black communities. And so what you notice is that um, some Afghans will like freely use the N-word or like really buy into the culture because um, they'll have friends who kind of 
it's this joke is like you have the black card like you've been given a pass like you're seen as one of them right like as part of like an ally to the community but like what does that mean right so the conversation was on um you know our first exposure to, to black culture and like how we talk about it how we engage in it and also the problematic ways we engage in it right um, one thing I know, like Omar, you mentioned, we didn't talk about a lot. I'm curious to get your thoughts on was like digital blackface. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, it was mentioned on the call too. And it was just an article that I, that I read. I remember Ali Baluch posted it and then I was like, yeah. whoa, this is actually a great article from Teen Vogue. Shout out Teen Vogue is like the most woke journalism you can find. Um, but the, um, and the editor is also from the Bay, from Newark, California, Are you right serious? next to Fremont. Yeah, she actually, yeah, she went to school with my cousin. I uh, went to high school with her, but yeah. So the yeah, so the whole idea of digital blackface, right? So we, I think people are relatively familiar with blackface and the history behind it, and you know, paint, you know, having white actors paint literally painting their faces black to act out, you know, um, act as black people, and and particularly exaggerated uh exaggerating black people like playing into their stereotypes so one of the things i'm noticing a lot is like how much we use gifs and memes and i from what i've seen and even my own experience like 90 percent of the time i'm using black people for that and the article talks about how we especially use black folks for any sort of exaggerated emotion like, yes, or, you know, like, uh, you know, angry, sad, surprise, like all those things, like we oftentimes use black people for that. Uh, and especially when you think about how black folks are punished for those exaggerated emotions, especially you think about black women, right? Like right. the stereotypes of being really loud, of being aggressive, yet we like, they are, they're punished for that. They are, uh, you know, stereotyped for that. But then we use that as our memes and our gifts. And I don't know, it's just weird. It's weird because as much as it's like not, you know, it's not our, it's not your intention to do that, but I don't know, something about it feels weird. And I think the article did a really good job of, of explaining how, you know, it's not saying that you can't ever use it, but you need to be aware of the history that like if you're going to use an exaggerated emotion from a black woman, then you also better not be uh, looking at these women in that way or having those ideas in your head at the same time, you know, and like harboring those stereotypes as well. Uh, so that's something that was a it was a really interesting point that I've been thinking about recently. Yeah, the subtleties of like, yeah, you're right. Like, I can't imagine, like, I love Rihanna and the number of times that I want to express an emotion just using her. Um, and now it's making me think, like, Rihanna, I think it was like a, last month, there was a Latin American hip hop artist, uh, not hip hop, pop artist, J Balvin or something, those basically shamed Rihanna for, for her blackness, right? So, like, even though for me, I think she's queen and like represents so many things, recognizing that. The, her blackness holds her back as one specific example or like her value and respect as a human being as an artist is diminished because of these stereotypes that surround her identity as a black woman and that goes into 
these memes, right? And these people that create it. And so it's these subtle ways, like, because I think Afghans want to, there, there's like a lot of pushback, like from Afghans, like, yo, I've seen some stuff. Like I've lived on the streets. Like you can't tell me like, you know, and it's like, yes, you have, like, I don't want to diminish what our mm. community has gone through or the trauma we've gone through. But just because we've been through traumatic situations, does it give us a right to disrespect other communities? Like, that's where my, like, uh, that's where my feelings kind of, like, get a little, like, weird, right? Because I think that sometimes we think that that license, like, oh, we've, we've had hardship gives us, like, permission to, like, take from other communities, right? But, like, but, but what if, you know, your circle, your community... Like, you know, like there are people who hang out with black folks and and marry into like black communities. Yeah. And, and, and what if that community that that like your community, those people that you surround yourself with um, are OK with it and are, are 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 fine with it and are cool with it? Like. Yeah, know, who's I'm, to say that they can't yeah. they can't, you, you know, like embrace that culture because that's part of that's part of their who who they're around and, and kind of what they've seen. Um, so is there like is there something wrong with that? Like, what are they supposed to do? No, I think like embracing a culture is great. I think with embracing a culture comes respecting a culture. And so I think for me, there's the whole, like the line of disrespect is like using terms like the N word in a derogatory fashion, right? Like we, it's used so casually. And to me, that word is, is a word that was used in times of violence and acted on black communities. And it's not a word I'd ever use, whether or not I was permitted opportunities to like, just because it's of the history of it. Right. And so to me, it's just a sign of like, I think it's like, if you really are part of that culture and you respect it, give it the respect that it's due. But, like, I recognize, like, that's my take, right? And, like, I, and I, my experience is not someone else's experience. But for me, I think if you really love this culture and this culture has embraced you, give it the respect that it's due. Hmm. One of the things I noticed on the call is, like, uh, a lot of our exposure to, when we think about black culture, we automatically go to music and sports. Yeah. Um. And I don't know, is that, is that fair for us to, is that a problem that we, when we think about black culture, we automatically go to that? I mean, like right now in the moment we're living in, hip hop is, is one of the, is the most mainstream sort of music. So it's something that all people in the millennial generation right now, like it's not just Afghan communities, it's like white kids. Everyone is like really all about the hip hop scene, right? So, but I do think it's a problem if that's the only thing we know. And that's where I think we need to have more education. Like for me, when I think of black culture, I think of black academics, like W.E.B. Du Bois. I think of Juanima Lubiano, like contemporaries that are alive right now. Um, your Banana Slug alum, Angela Davis, is at Santa Cruz, right? Like I think of black academics because they've pushed conversations in a way from like the most elite spaces, um, if they, if like Du Bois didn't go to Harvard, if we didn't have these folks in these spaces, who knows if the doors for like other immigrant or people of color would be open for us to be in these university spaces. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, some, something that, um, 
uh, I've been I've been reading is how much, you know, when we think about hip hop and the music and what is popular and main what's considered kind of mainstream, yeah, uh, it often plays into a lot of racist tropes of black totally. people, and you know, I I don't think it's any coincidence that what becomes most popular in hip hop and mainstream music ends up being this kind of hypersexualized, hyperviolent form of the music. Uh, and I think one of the something that I read was how a lot of these very racist depictions of black people uh, were made by white people in films and they uh, put that as part of their movies. And now it's just it's still being replicated, but in a different way. Right. So now they're just pushing these artists as a way to kind of get around that yeah uh, to get around now that they're not you know i don't have to i don't have to these these direct these this industry doesn't have to make films with angry black women they can just put you know make it a reality show on vh1 you know and create that and and make that as their as a mechanism of kind of perpetuating a lot of those stereotypes and not giving the full view of the experience yeah and that's the scary thing is seeing how much it reproduces within the media we consume and and we do have choices though like think of Ava DuVernay or Black Panther which we had talked about last episode like when you get black artists in the room that are pushing the envelope like we do have access to positive messages and even in the hip-hop scene like um, Janelle Monae's album just dropped last week, right? And her album is, like, pushing not on, like, discourse on race, but on discourse on on black women and, and on women and femininity. And I think she just came out, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, I believe she came out in an article. Yeah, so, like, this, uh, like this intersectionality of being, you know, a queer black female artist and, like, all of that at once... And then I think it's important for us as Afghan communities because I feel like that's the door that kind of made us comfortable, like kind of um, integrating into the communities that grew up in in elementary school and high school. Like that's the stuff that got us through, like Tupac got folks through, you know, school. Like, um, so again, that's where it goes back to like this point on respect and understanding the history and roots. And then one person on the call, I think is Amir, he um he plays the saxophone, right? Yeah. So he's talking about sax. Yeah. So like he his influence is not like hip hop uh, for him, black culture is like the jazz culture, right? Um and uh one thing that I I, I found interesting is how much as Afghan men, uh and just men in America, our uh, masculinity is tied to hip hop <laughs> and, nope. and kind of how we view hip hop artists. And so what uh, Jack, uh, Jackson Katz, he's a uh, educator, like, you know, talks about um, about gender. Uh, and he he talks about how it's interesting how like non-black people, white people, whoever, imitate uh black culture well imitate hip-hop culture this like hyper hyper violent hyper masculine um form of hip-hop 
as yeah. a way to as a as kind of this guide to being a man. But at the same time, uh, the influences of hip hop in this culture is from Scarface, from The Godfather, from films yeah. that are made by white people. Uh, so they're, you know, so they're kind of so it's this like weird cycle where uh, this form of hip hop and this form of music and popular culture is actually, you know, birthed from white culture. But now it's being targeted and pinpointed at and being like, oh, that's part of black culture. It's like, no, they got that from Ameri- white American films. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but we say that, oh, no, these black men or whoever is, you know, violent and, you know, hypersexualized and all these things. And it's like, no, like that actually came. So it's just, it's just interesting cycle um, that I feel like was, was kind of eye opening for me. Yeah. And like those assumptions that are made, I, I was talking to someone who one P two PhD students were talking to each other that are younger than me. And the one turned to the woman who's a black woman and he's a white dude. And he's like, I have a question for you. And she's like, why? And he's like, why do black men in your community cheat so much? And she just like had no idea what to say Whoa. to this person, but it was this assumption he made. And she's like, where'd you get that from? He's like, you know, like, I, he's like, I was watching all these music, R. Kelly music videos the other day. And like, let's, and let's not even get into R. Kelly, but like, hmm. um, but it wasn't like, oh, men cheat. It was like, he made this association of like, black men and cheating and so it's interesting how much black men are seen as representatives for things um do you how do you have these conversations with like family and stuff like with afghans uh like black culture or yeah i mean we know our our community is pretty racist like or at least i mean yeah. yeah It's it's different forms, right? It looks different in, in in different ways. Like I feel like the younger generation it might be in a different way, whereas older generation are more like overtly racist. Uh, I mean, with the younger generation, you, I mean, the number of Afghan guys I've heard this like say things like "bitches and hoes." Yeah, they're picking that up from, and they like, and they'll be like, "Bitches be like X Y Z," and they they do this as a front to like assert their masculinity. Um, I remember, I think it was at my uncle's engagement, someone was, like, telling the women, the single women, like, you guys don't marry Afghan men. They have so many problems. Like, marry a white a white boy. He'll listen to whatever you want. And so then I was like, well, what about what about black men? Like, why are you telling people to you say non-Afghans? How about black men? You know, I was trying to, like, stir the pot. Yeah. And then, like, Nibachim, that's worse than Afghan, right? Mm. And I was like, what does that mean that that's worse than Afghan, right? Wow. Like, these... And this is just like in a joking way in a in a dinner conversation, right? So those are the moments though I think we need to take advantage to push back on, right? Because um, it happens a lot. I made my dad watch a video on lynchings the other day. Wow. Um, we can post, I might post it on Facebook, but um, Google has this really dope project where they map all the lynchings that have happened in the U.S. And it has a video like showing this young woman who goes to her ancestral land and like looks at where her grandfather was lynched and like my Baba's not from here. He didn't go to school here and he had no understanding of what that meant until he saw that video. And I think that watching it with him was really, um, interesting. I think it 
made him very emotional and he didn't really want to talk about it afterwards, but it, it kind of got the point across and I didn't go into it like, dad, I have to teach you something. I was like, dad, this is something really interesting. Google did. Do you want to watch it with me? Mm. And so I feel like there's moments like that, like where, when we're home and stuff comes up, like you can easily just kind of be like, yo, this thing, you want to just watch it with me for five minutes? And, um, it's weird to do, but I think our parents are like people in our community are more open to it than we might think they are. Yeah. I, I'm guilty of that. I'm like, I definitely have given up a lot of times on like, especially yeah. like the older generation. Yeah. I think like, I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like I don't have the capacity to, I feel like, you know, I think about my sphere of influence and it's mostly amongst peers and I just assume that people who are older are just not going to change. And so a part of me is kind of like, I don't want to spend so much energy on these people who are going to be the most difficult to change. And I'd rather spend that time and that energy on peers and folks that are, you know, amongst my age range that I could have more influence upon. And I don't know if that's the yeah. right thing. And part of it's like, well, how are you going to go talk to these other people when you can't even talk to your own parents or, you know, your own family? But I don't know. I, I, I've, I think I've, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't have the capacity or I'm just being lazy. I don't know what it is. No, I mean, it's complicated and it's hard, right? Um, Cause it is like, where do you exert your energy? I think for our parents, for me, it's like, um, what they do know is struggle and they respect people who have gone through shit because they've gone through some things. Right. And I don't think they have taken the time to know what it is that certain other communities have gone through. And so but they, but they've convinced themselves that certain communities have uh, created their own struggle. Like they are responsible for their struggle. Like black people have struggled because they they're are lazy. They're, they're lazy. They're dumb, whatever it may be. Like that's yeah, what they believe. Yeah. Well, that's when, when you introduce them to the history of it, that's when, you know, I feel like that might open the door for pushing conversation forward. Because after that lynching thing, all my dad said was like, this seems like America's version of the Holocaust. Interesting. Like that was his like takeaway point. Because he, he gets the Holocaust and how effed up that is. Because where we grew up, there's a big Jewish American community. And so that's like something mm. that our neighbors and people like he's, done business with it comes up and he has deep respect for like survivors of the holocaust right so that was the connection he made um but speaking of i know like we're sort of running low on time but connected to black culture and probably what's most pervasive in the news regarding black culture right now is kanye west <laughs> do you want to update folks on <laughs> what did he say he said uh he basically was on tmz and said slavery was a choice yeah. Um, and I don't know how I feel about this because I'm, you know, I'm a huge Kanye fan. Mm -hmm. Um, same. And so, you know, in, in the podcast that I mentioned, dissect where they go through his album, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, they talk about his like mental health and how he struggles so much with, um, his own, you know, his own kind of inner demons and, and, and like diagnose, like not just like, you know, emotional whatever it's like diagnosed he talks about having um taking medication he talks about suicide he kind of alludes to it in his songs and so part of me is like okay maybe this guy has like some mental health issues 
another part of me is like, well, this dude also is just maybe just playing everybody. Like maybe he's just trying to get attention and get hype. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I never know with it. <laughs> I, I like for me, I'm trying to figure out what his, like, he's an artist and he's so deep in his art that I like, I'm like, well, there's gotta be more, but it's also because like you have like this love for Kanye makes me like want to look for more, but he has, he has definitely crossed the line with some people like within like my biggest concern is like these like Trump folks loving him and like these uh, like yeah. far right alt right folks embracing him. And, um, he's down with I, us now. Yeah. And I haven't listened to the full, he did an interview with Charlemagne, the God, and I haven't listened to the whole thing after so, the TMZ thing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and they're like outside in the fields or something. I'll, uh, we can, yeah, po- post it on our TSN Facebook page, but uh, and see what people think. But my thing is, some people really just see artists as a representative, an ambassador of politics. And I think Khalid Beydoun said this the other day: like, don't take your your news and advice on life from celebrities. You know, yeah. and we do have this expectation that celebrities represent politics and all this stuff and they don't like maybe he's just someone who makes music and like let him like why do we take his thoughts so seriously like and Mm -hmm. i think and you do because hip-hop is an art form that interrogates social and political issues so it is a little naive to say you don't because at least with hip-hop you do but this but Kanye's like he's doing a lot and I don't know. I don't think I have an opinion on it, but I do think it's doing a lot of damage. Uh, and that doesn't worry me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's been interesting kind of reading some of the, reading some of the reactions to it. And I'm curious to see what comes of this, like what some other interviews are. And also, it also is like whenever he says something or does something, it's like hyper scrutinized. It's hyper, it's like so much, it's put on blast. Like he's like the most, the most evil person in the world. And I feel like there's a lot worse out there and we just pay attention to every little thing that he does. Cause he's brilliant. Like some people put him in their top three, you know, rappers of all time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So when the top three rappers of all time is also someone who's disrespecting the community he came from, what does that mean? No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, but all right. Well, you chose this. You chose this, <laughs> Nura. Um, Lots so- to think about as we go into um, the next podcast. And I think we have a lot of um, new updates coming. We got some new folks joining the Samoware Network team yeah. and a new project in the works. And so, like, uh, a couple new things in the works for our community. So, hopefully, by the next podcast, we can actually reveal and share more about that. But until then, thanks for tuning in and being in conversation with us. Thanks, everybody. Peace.